Welcome to Fierce City, where we will delve into the people, places and events from the history of the greatest capital city in the world, and our home, London. I'm PJ. And I'm Satu, and we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser-known history of London. London has never been exactly a dry city. Drinking alcohol has kept Londoners going through tough times, and stopped Londoners leaving for as long as history can recall. Today we're going to talk about the spirit which we all know and love, except on a hangover, gin. I am personally very partial to a gin and tonic. I do not like gin, disclaimer alert. Uh, gin has become a really hipster drink in London these it really days. Has. Most neat spirits are quite of a hipster drink now. Which is kind of hilarious because it's basically distilled poison. Well, today we're going to talk a bit about when gin drinking was much less salubrious, lots less aspirational. It's the 17th and 18th centuries of London. Basically a massive slum. Everyone lives in misery. <laughs> yeah, I don't really think of gin in London as being like totally synonymous. But then I suppose it's dry London gin. Even gin that's created in other countries calls itself dry London. Gin. Oh, so it's a it kind of gin, it's a brand. It's a brand, it, it's not like champagne where you can't <laughs> call it champagne unless it's in that region. I Lied love London that you're gin. mentioning those in the same breath though, <laughs> I'm very proud of London. You can't really tell the story of gin without talking about the story of London, and in particular a mania that swept London in the 1700s, which became known as the gin craze or the gin panic. I love crazes. I absolutely love it when things like panic sweep London. And I suppose there are worse panics than some gin. <laughs> well, you say that, well, but yeah. people took it very seriously, as we're about to find out. So let's begin. Oh, God. And travel back to London in 1700, when this quintessential gin and tonic we all drink nowadays was just a twinkle in the eye of all things alcoholic. Of course, alcohol was no new invention to Londoners back in 1700, but by the late 1600s, the main tipple of choice was beer, or ale, as I should call it, because it probably tasted nothing like what we now consider beer to be, or lager. Isn't ale all that people drink now? I mean, I couldn't go and get a shandy, as I want to do, <laughs> using the kind of ale that they used to produce in 1690. At least I could, but it would be horrible. I once um, I went to a very cool, trendy East End pub and asked for a shandy and got a bitter with actual real, like, old-fashioned school lemonade. I know the tale because I bought it for you. I, really I brought it back to you and you were so annoyed. It, they squeezed the lemonade in front of me. It curdled. <laughs> so, other than beer, wine was also drunk, um, but that tended to be by more of the well-heeled of society. Although generally speaking, both rich and poor all did drink alcohol, so it was a very democratic substance even then. I mean, the reason for that is because all the water was absolutely putrid, like it would kill you, so you had to distill or like boil water, so you may as well distill it and have a beer. Well, absolutely, and on that very point, spirits as we know them now were reserved more for kind of medicinal purposes, and distilled spirits, even though they were better than this horrible water were still so putrid and gross that they needed to be mixed with other things in order to kind of mask the flavour. They were thought to be good to get rid of things like the plague, little annoyances <laughs> like the plague. In London, you could buy the spirits, or what they were called then, strong water, from strong water shops. Before gin came on the scene, aniseed was the favourite mixer of choice in the city. And there was even a famous character called Aniseed Robin, who was so well known in Leadenhall and the stocks market for his liquor and his broad-brimmed hat that it became the proverbial when we saw a man with a hat hanging about his ears to say, he looks like Aniseed Robin, which was actually the kind of equivalent of 17th century bants there. 
Hilarious. Well, unfortunately for Aniseed Robin, an international war was about to change the way that the Brits drank forever. The Glorious Revolution brought William of Orange to London as king, taking over as Protestant ruler. William came from Holland, and Holland dominated the spice trade, so they had a leg up on experimenting with mixing their spirits with some fun flavours. The most popular was juniper, which in Dutch was called Jennifer, and spoiler alert, this was abbreviated to gin, which, further spoiler alert, if you ever try to research gin, is really hard to find it because it's always called Jennifer, and I which spent I was many fruitless saying minutes. in my head, Geneva. I knew you would be. I knew this moment would come. Uh, I'm so sure that it's Jennifer because it sounds more like juniper. I mean, I think it's just really interesting, the etymology of where the words come from. It is. And I think it's just funny how even if it was gin, it would be G-E-N. Yeah, they were like, no, but remember all the sources from olden times, everything's written in an extremely random way. So I guess some point someone just decided it was going to be gin instead of gen. So the Dutch effectively invaded England and took over becoming the king. We're probably going to do a podcast episode about the Glorious Revolution at some point. It's actually cool. So I'll just leave you on tenterhooks about that. Um, and they were known for their fearless fighting spirit, the Dutch. So that's where Dutch courage comes from. So many learns. Gin, Dutch courage. I know. I bet in Holland they call it English courage. I bet they don't. Oh. So William came to power in 1690, and one of the first things he did was to enact some Acts of Parliament, which led to spirits being introduced to the mainstream in London. As part of these acts, all Catholic and French booze was outlawed, so the rich couldn't get their brandy from France anymore. At the time, brandy was used kind of synonymously with any spirit, really. So it it was like burnt wine is where it comes from. But William's deregulation of alcohol increased the market for English grain, and it reduced the duties on things called low wine, which is what they called spirits. Okay, conspiracy theory. So all the landed gentry, the aristocracy, grew this grain on their land. I bet they had a hand in this. So they're like, something that we can do with all this grain we've got. And you can make spirits from grain that's too rubbish to eat. Well, that they did have the surplus of grain and there was like, what should we do with it? So it, it was them making an extra buck. In order to make spirit, you have to distill it once and then you distill it again with the botanicals. So they would bulk distill the grain and then give it to everyone else to do their little distilling. Less of a conspiracy theory, more of a mainstream analysis like of the situation. manufacturer of spirit, yeah. Okay. Before William came in, there was a company called the Worshipful Company of Distillers, and they had a monopoly, basically, on distilling in Britain, and this monopoly was ended by William of Orange. Whilst they still were responsible for much of the production of that main spirit I just talked about, it was open season for the second distilling and that's when the flavor as i said was added so it's juniper for gin oh i bet it wasn't only i bet they put any old fruit in oh yeah i think it was just because the dutch used juniper and it's probably quite a potent smell i mean i'm wearing it now as aftershave you're so on message smells horrible now anybody could be this distiller without a license and they had to pay very little in taxes whereas conversely if you wanted to drink beer or sell beer more importantly To be an alehouse, you had to get a license from a magistrate, you had to swear allegiance to the crown, and you had various church and military obligations, like um, you had to board the military if they were in town. So we have completely unlicensed spirit distilling happening, and people are incentivized to make it. 
Whilst Aniseed was still very popular, as I said, Juniper was gaining some traction, but there were other things as well, like counterfeit brandy, and they used prunes and burnt sugar. People tried to get into the market with their own personal mixes. One of them was, for example, Widow's Coffee House, and they said that their Aqua Veneris would restore an old man of threescore to a juvenile of thirty, or make a girl at fourteen, when drinking but one glass, as ripe as an old maid of twenty-four. Gross. It's so gross somehow. This is a bit of a double standard afoot there. Just a tiny bit. Tiny bit, but you know what? That window coffee house. <laughs> I bet they sell a lot of booze. When I imagine us in the past, we're doing things like running the Widow's Coffee House. I can't imagine for a second, though, that we would be marketing it like that. No. <laughs> not, with, not with you. Not with me around, <laughs> keeping you in line. So after 10 years from the turn of the century, gin was becoming very popular, unsurprisingly. And this led to some people questioning whether this new gin drink should maybe be regulated somehow. Enter stage right, Queen Anne, my favourite queen. You love Queen Anne so much. I do. Who was very popular, not just with me, but with the people of the time. Why why do you like Queen Anne so much? I went to see a play about her and she was like so drab. Yeah, I like her because she was just sort of boring and friendless and kind of, you know, like overweight and ill. I just like that about her. I kind of prefer it to like glorious queens in velvet being really amazing. Fair enough. So Queen Anne, she, well, one of the reasons I like her is that she herself liked a little tipple as she was sitting around in her house being overly friendly with just her one friend. Who went on to betray her. Oh no, is that what happened in the play? <laughs> yeah. Oh, bummer. Queen Anne confirmed that if you distilled your own gin, you did not need a license, especially if you sent some to Queen Anne, I imagine. There was also an exception for sales by those selling mainly other goods. So like a little supermarket of the 18th century. So it's important to say there were kind of some elements of regulation here, and that was mainly directed at these big bulk distillers. But if you were just like selling some wares, you could also sell gin without any kind of tax or consequence. But the brewers did not like this. The Puritans were really anti-booze. They were the people who started calling gin in general mother gin. And the contemporaries were obsessed with personifying gin into this Madame Ginevra. Back in 1713, about two million gallons of raw spirit by that point were being distilled per year in London. So this gin was sold kind of as fake brandy. They would counterfeit it because they couldn't get it from France anymore. So they'd say, oh, here's actual brandy, which was actually just sweetened gin. And they also mixed gin with ale. And that mixture was known as pearl. So like the 17th century snake bite. God, 17th century snake bite must have been absolutely poisonous. Gin was in plentiful supply, obviously, because of how how much of it was being distilled. And you'd mainly serve it by mixing two parts gin, one part this horrible water and then sell it in quarter pint drams. Well, I wonder how tasty drinking almost neat gin was, PJ. Is that a hint that we're now going to try some of the gin that Satu's I think we should try it. So what is it, Satu? It's London Dry Gin. Yes, I believe this was bought from a general goods store. It's actually fancy. This comes from my drink shelf. This is not sort of plain label bottom shelf. Now, gin. you failed us somewhat here because it's distillers in Cheshire. It's, it says London Dry Gin on the bottom. Which is why I come back to the fact that that is just in production and not the provenance. It even says Blackfriars on it. It's just lying to oh, us. No. Anyway, I'm sure it's horrible, so we'll try it out. We're going to try on mic this neat gin here. Can I put some putrid water in it to make it taste better? <laughs> yeah, but you have to go and find some putrid water. Oh, oh God. 
it's not it's not quaffable is it do you know what i drink vodka martinis and i like them pretty alcoholic but that goes down badly it's probably not as bad as i thought it was going to be but i'd strongly prefer to have it with some tonic water your face is a picture it tastes like the aftershave i'm wearing right now that's not a good thing so we've established that the coming of the, the quinine tree and its delicious tonic water was a good addition to gin. Because can you imagine sitting around drinking quarter pints of this for, for fun? I... Oh, there's a real aftertaste. So that kind of brings me to a quote from 1720. These taverns are almost full of men and women and even children who drink with so much enjoyment that they find it difficult to walk away on going. No wonder if a kid had some of this, they'd be rolling home. Drinking gin wasn't constrained to just leisure time. It was done with business. It was meant to be drunk whilst settling deals, also whilst working at the workhouse. I mean, it's totally safe, obviously. This is like looms and things, isn't it? So that's just going to be bad time. Being drunk wasn't, at this point, looked down upon. You could equally be a magistrate, wasted at the bench, or you could be an upper-class gentleman having a gin with breakfast. Benjamin Franklin, when visiting from America, commented that his colleague drunk a pint of spirit in the morning, a pint of spirit at lunch, and a pint at the end of the day, and he was just so bemused by the whole thing. Everyone was wasted, and you can imagine (laughs) someone from America coming over this kind of young upstart of a country trying to find Mm. its feet, and just literally everyone was just on the floor. Yeah, what is this hellscape? I'm still drinking the gin, actually, and it's, it's, coming down, it's going down nicely now, I have to say. See, see how quickly you get used to it. You're going to be down gin lane before you know it. So while they did have pubs back then, as we do now, a lot of selling happened just in people's rooms, like a little room in their house, and you just go off the street into pretty much any old house and someone would be selling you gin. And there were a lot of street sellers and these were mostly women, actually. It was like a business opportunity for the ladies, as we've already heard about the Merry Widows. But young single women, the innocent, you know, milkmaids drawn to London, would basically get here, find there wasn't a lot of work. Even if you could be a maid, it, it wasn't like the greatest work to be doing. And you could just walk around on the streets selling gin as a gin hawker. Pretty much every industry was barred to them at this point as well. So it was maiding, prostituting, or selling gin. Women were also drinking a lot of gin, partly just because life was so hard. One woman who worked on a market told the magistrate's court in 1725 that if it wasn't for a drink in the morning, she would never be able to do her job, get up early and go to bed late in all weathers. So why was all this gin drinking and distilling mainly confined to London? Simply put, London was just the most exciting and kind of dangerous place in the whole of Britain at the time. And it goes back to what you were saying a moment ago in relation to people coming to London for new opportunities, women and men alike. By the early 1700s, London had 600,000 inhabitants, which is over 30 times bigger than the next largest town in England. I think the population in England back then was just a lot more fluid, and it was established that around this time, one in every six Britons spent some time of their life in the capital, which is huge. So all these people from the country came to London with aspirational dreams. And there were so many things that were so particular about London that made it cool, like the fashion. And even the fashion was a reason why people came to London, because you could seem like a member of a higher class just from the clothes that you wore. Whereas in the country, it was very obvious which social standing you were by how you dressed. Plus everyone knew you. So they were like, look at you, Alice Jenkins, getting above your station in life. 
you could put on a show in London, you could rise through the classes just by holding yourself out to be somebody. It was like a bit of a party in London. And like all parties, you were either celebrating by drinking a lot or drowning your sorrows because things weren't going quite so well. So you're either in the living room or the kitchen. So alcohol was really important in this massive celebration or massive sorrow mentality in London. And the divide between the rich and the poor was really obvious, as was the geographical elements of London in terms of the divide. So for example, in the Strand and Fleet Street, things were filled with shops of the finest products. Whereas in places like Drury Lane and Seven Dials, it was run down and swamped with the poor. Just for people who don't know London, those places that you've just named are so close to each other that like, that's a couple of streets away. I was going to say for the record at this point that Satu's now moved on to a gin and tonic. The neat <laughs> spirit didn't quite sit with you. No. So London was overpopulated and everyone was shoulder to shoulder in this mix of rich and poor, which really did promote the drinking of alcohol and the selling of alcohol in itself. London had everything. It had racetracks, it had spas, and pretty much everything was for sale. Along with this came the kind of more seedy part of town. And obviously prostitution was rife. And there were things like the New Atlantis Guide, which rated different prostitutes. I've heard of this. Then the Covent Garden Guide was basically like where you could go for different services. There was even a floating brothel just outside Somerset House as well. In, on the river? On the river. In, and interestingly, I didn't know this, but prostitutes then were called punks. Really? Yeah. Is that where the word I have no be. idea if that's where the word comes from, but they were referred to kind of as punks. That's fascinating. Sadly, every party must end. And after three decades of drunkenness, the bubble was about to burst. One thing which brought it on was a stock market crash in 1720, and that caused people to look for blame as their fortunes went down the pan. One thing blamed was the booze. Judge and general busybody Sir John Gonson proclaimed, Take notice of the great destruction made by brandy and Geneva shops, whose owners retail their liquors to the poorer sort of people, and do suffer them to sit tippling in their shops, by which practice they are rendered incapable of labour to get an honest living. You do good, Magistrate. So the gin craze became a thing at this point, as the newspapers were quick to jump on the bandwagon with stories of the evils of Lady Geneva. The pendulum swung back, and the puritanical ways of people like the Society for the Reformation of Manners emerged against drunkenness and profanity. They used informers and did try to prosecute people in the courts. 90,000 people drinking and selling gin were informed against by 1725. Quite how much this actually led to people being fined and sent to jail at the stage, I don't know. These societies weren't predominantly against booze. It was on their list, but it went kind of prostitution, women being women, profanity, (laughs) and then booze was at the bottom. Really? Do you know what? I mean, women being women is the worst crime that someone can commit against society. Which goes back to why gin was personified as Lady Geneva. Certainly. If you've seen in the newspapers of this time, all the satirical cartoons have a sort of crony, witch-like woman personifying gin, and then, you know, like a a fallen maiden and a slouchy, pot-bellied man in breeches. Maximum 18th century. So the biggest enemy at this time to Madame Geneva were the magistrates. To talk about magistrates very briefly in 18th century London, they were unpaid civil servants who were also detectives, police chiefs, they were judges, they also provided social services. So magistrates did an awful lot. And magistrates were exclusively gentlemen who had to be rich enough that they didn't need employment. They needed to be people who were allowed to pass judgment on poor people. 
So in order to qualify to be a magistrate, you had to have an annual income of £300. But the role was obviously really demanding. You had to like sit in for a drunkard coming in at three in the morning. So if you were that rich, you didn't really have that much interest in taking a hands-on community role. Which meant that a shortage of volunteers led to the income threshold being lowered to about £100 per annum. And this lower income threshold led to the role appealing to those who saw value in trading justice for cash. Amongst these magistrates was Sir John Gonson, who Sathu just expertly quoted, and he was really leading a crusade against gin, and brought together his fellow judges in Middlesex to campaign for the end of gin drinking. Now Middlesex in London meant everything north of the city and west of Westminster, so that that was actually quite a huge part of London. So these magistrates, try as they might, could not stop poor people from drinking gin because they liked it. The law also still permitted private distilling. And while the magistrates had power, they couldn't invent new laws. That was for the actual rich people. To try and persuade the powers that be, they instructed the police to count all of the people doing distilling in their district. These were massive numbers, like in the thousands. In St. Giles, which I think we've mentioned previously as being like the worst of the slums, you could buy a dram, which I think is like just a little cup, like less than a quarter of a pint, in one out of every five houses, and that doesn't even count the the hawkers walking down the street doing the selling. These reports, complaining about gin, centred around gin making poor people idle and committing crimes like thieving. They conveniently forgot to mention all of the rich people getting drunk. Yeah, none of these reports highlighted the rich drinking at all. It was all about where in the poorest areas how many people could sell gin. A really interesting thing we learnt about past London when we did the London Monster episode about the 18th century was that you could sort of just walk into poor people's houses and look at them. Do you remember that? Uh, Whereas I think rich people, you couldn't just barrel into their house and start seeing how many bottles of gin they had. Well, you also have to remember that these houses, they weren't one family houses. You would have five, six, seven, eight families in one kind of townhouse. Yeah, in a very weakly subdivided old leaning house. So in order for just them to gain access to the road abode, it, it couldn't be that secure. The people doing the distilling fought back. This is their livelihood. And they also lobbied Parliament. Famous writer Daniel Defoe. He wasn't that famous to me until I realised who he was. He wrote Robinson Crusoe. Uh, so is that famous enough for you, PJ? This very famous author focused on the benefits of the distilling process. And he said... If the people want to destroy themselves by their own excesses, tis the magistrate's business to help that, not the distillers. I love another Daniel Defoe quote when he was helping to lobby on behalf of the distillers. Our very plough fellows drink wine nowadays. Our farmers, graziers and butchers are above malt liquors. And the wholesome breakfast of water gruel and milk pottage is changed for coffee and tea. Oh, just I'd love to have some milk pottage and water gruel for my breakfast before a long day working in the fields. Yeah, he hardly is an advocate for the poor. There was this real idea amongst the kind of well-educated that people were getting above their station. This new cool London meant that lots of people could access things they just couldn't access in the country. So all of these efforts to stop people from drinking gin, even though they were having really horrible effects on people's health, were not about that. This is about stopping poor people from getting uppity and above themselves, but it's also about making sure they're ready there to labour in the fields, down the mines, on the warships of the rich people. That's the, the yeah. whole policy here. Being, being drunk obviously physically prevented you from being able to do hard labour. But also, if you were rolling about the streets drunk, you looked like you were having a good time. And then by inference, you weren't respecting the powers that be. 
So this really annoyed these puritanical upper classes. And whilst I am no fan of these zealots, they probably do have a point in that this poor quality gin was poisonous and it was just so readily available that it went beyond people just having a quick tipple and it came to be such a way of life that it genuinely made the struggle of being poor even harder. There are reports of employers selling gin to their workers so that by the end of the week they had no money to take home to feed their family because they'd already had such a debt with their employer from drinking all the gin. There were real addiction issues and booze was probably not doing anyone any benefit. I mean, I do agree. Just because it wasn't what they intended, I I think in the end, the byproduct of trying to stop people from drinking so heavily probably be a good thing. So by 1728, the anti-gin lobby were making some good progress and they'd even managed to turn Daniel Defoe to their side. John Gonson, that magistrate, was rising through the ranks and he was on a royal committee to advise the lawmakers on the best way to tackle the gin craze. Whilst politicians and kings in the early 18th century weren't really worried too much about social reform, they didn't really care about the plight of the poor people and they really didn't care about things like swearing and drinking. One thing they did care about, though, was money. There was a new man in charge, Britain's first Prime Minister, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, mm-hmm. Robert Walpole, and also a new King George II. And Walpole promised King George extra funds for his royal coffers. And where is he going to try and find the money? Taxation. And whilst it was a little while before they could really get gin taxed and really make some money from it, the puritanical anti-gin lobby now had the attention of government who began to realise they could monetize this whole thing. So at this point, lumbers on to the stage, one Joseph Jekyll. He was described as a man of regular habits, immense wealth and conspicuous virtues. Uh, According to aristocrat the Earl of Egmont, he cut his own heir out of his will for coming back from the continent through France rather than Holland, as he had recommended. He got up at 6am in the morning, which is baffling to me because if I was a rich aristocrat and never had to work a day in my life, I would rise at 10am, and his entire day was badgering his family to pray and go on walks. He had an opponent called Lord Harvey who hated his guts, but did concede that though no individual in the house ever spoke of him with esteem or respect, but rather with a degree of contempt or ridicule, yet from his age and the constant profession of having the public good at heart beyond any other point of view, he had worked himself into such a degree of credit with the accumulated body that he certainly spoke with more general weight than any other single man in that assembly. Point being, this was the well-placed guy in history who was going to be able to get the puritanical point of view into the House of Parliament. Even though he sounds like a right drag, Jekyll had one pal in Queen Caroline. She was married to George II, but he was away overseas often enough that she got to wield some real power as his regent. George II is an interesting king. (laughs) He was the last British king to have been born abroad, and he liked to go home to Hanover in the summer to be an elector there instead of be actually being king of England. So he wasn't a good Part, king. Part-time king. Yeah. This was nice for Queen Caroline. She got to be the main queen. Queen Caroline didn't seem to get on with the gin drinking so well. And obviously she was a mate with Jekyll. And she was said to have seen a great deal of bestialities and indecencies when she was probably rolling about town. Jekyll also fell in with a junior bishop called Thomas Wilson, who was after some advancement within the establishment, and wanted Jekyll to promote him to the Queen. Wilson realised that his new patron and the Queen were anti-gin, so he quickly dashed off a book entitled Distilled Spiritous Liquors, The Bane of the Nation. 
and he gave a copy to Jekyll, obviously, and the Queen, and Jekyll really liked it, and so he gave him £20 to get 1,000 copies printed and circulated. Jekyll urgently wanted poor people to be restored to their rightful places, sailing warships, ploughing fields, and then producing more people to sail warships and plough fields. They also disliked the poor having the luxuries of enjoying the sort of things that rich people liked, as we were talking about earlier. So he was one of those main people making sure that all the poor people had as little fun as possible. The poor were supposed to be full of joy at the prospect of having just some weak beer, a bit of offal for dinner, and a good day's work. So he was one of the main people who backed the bill to make selling gin the most expensive and restricted process as possible. A new survey of gin sellers was commissioned, and this time it seemed that the number of parlours and shops had risen to 7,044. That's like twice as much last time. And this still wasn't even a survey of the whole of London. So these lawmakers were in paroxysms of imagination about how many there really were. What else was out there in the slums waiting to be uncovered? These numbers were released to the press. The newspapers dealt partly in making middle class and wealthy readers feel better about themselves compared to the poor, so they really ran with this. The London magazine stated that there is hardly a week, I may say a day, that we don't hear of some murder, robbery, fire, or other dreadful mischief occasioned by people being intoxicated with these inflammatory liquors. It seems that gin drinking, among the other strong waters, was causing an uplift in public violence. Publications like the London Magazine and other newspapers had really flipped from gin being a bit of fun to now, by 1730 onwards, it being a real scourge. Whilst everyone in reality was still drinking as much gin as ever, there was a real laser focus at making gin unlawful. It's often a thing when it comes to these crazes and fears and things. It's actually the press. We know about them, but also the press effectively creates this extra terror in people. I doubt many middle class and rich people were spending like all day worrying about this. And as I said earlier, the politicians had much bigger fish to fry than worrying about drunk people. On top of this newspaper furore and the magistrates hating it, the gin distillers weren't really helping themselves. And for example, outside of one gin seller shop, it said, drunk for one pence, dead drunk for two pence, clean straw for nothing, with the straw being a place to lay your head. This became a famous catchphrase that really summarised everything that the polite classes found terrible about gin drinking. And the newspapers began to run a lot of stories about people dying from gin drinking. For example, two glaziers and a bricklayer who necked nine quarts of gin and just died the same evening. Nine quarts is more than two whole bottles of gin, so I'm not that surprised. No, and obviously if they spent all that money on gin, they would have spent approximately no money on food. Or straw. Prime Minister Walpole was basically indifferent to this rising tide of anti-gin sentiment. That just wasn't who he was. He liked the taxes that could be levied on gin. He didn't want to annoy the powerful grain growers, which is to say his aristocratic fellow MPs who owned all the land the grain was grown on. And he knew if he tried to take the gin away, there would be riots. Speaking of riots, around this time, you've got the Riot Act, which is obviously where the phrase reason the Riot Act comes from. And it literally is, if there was a congregation of more than 14 people, you could read the Riot Act out and they had to disperse, otherwise they could all get arrested. So he had this Riot Act that he could read to people, but he still didn't want there to be any riots, because if there's one thing we've learned about Londoners throughout history, they love to riot and they literally don't care what the government says. Jekyll, our puritanical friend, his bill was going to make the licence fee to sell gin £50. 
which was beyond ludicrous. Like you wouldn't make fifty pounds in a year. No way, no you way. Get a it license. was tantamount to prohibition. If you needed a fifty pound license to sell gin, it just wasn't ever going to happen. That was just for the people who were selling the little drams and quartz, though. Not for the people who actually made all of the many gallons of gin and sold it on. Oh no. Even for them, that was an extortion at cost. Yeah, I mean, they would never have gotten it, but they were powerful enough to lobby not to have to pay it. But amazingly enough, this bill did actually make it through, and at that point, the situation gets quite a lot more complicated for the ordinary people of London. So there wasn't just one Gin Act, there were several Gin Acts, but the one that is most important and the one that we care about is this Gin Act that came in, which was tantamount to prohibition, and levied this huge licence fee. It also had massive fines, so if you were selling gin without this expensive license you could be fined £100 on the spot and if you were just a street seller you could be fined £10. So that's still a huge amount of money. If you were a street seller of gin you wouldn't make £10 a year. No you didn't have that money. The great thing about the yeah the first relevant gin act in 1736 is they did leave this loophole in which they didn't pay informers they didn't have any budget for that so literally no one informed on each other it would be informing on your own neighbors and it was a really dangerous thing to do like you could get beaten to death so no one did it another loophole that they tried was that you needed a license to sell under 2 gallons of gin at one time so clever people decided to say oh I'll sell you two gallons of gin. What I'll do is I'll keep it back. And obviously, because that's a lot of money for you to spend, you can get it on credit and you can just take little amounts when you like and pay for it as it goes. That (laughs) didn't last too long and that was clamped down on. So this act was hated by the distillers. So obviously the government were really worried that there was going to be a massive riot. They heard that pub landlords were going to fuel a protest by handing out free gin Joseph Jekyll, the proponent of this bill, was receiving threatening letters and a mob did actually gather outside of his house on the eve of the Gin Act coming into force. But rather than sparking violence, they instead just got massively wasted. Well, if they thought all of their gin was going to be taken away from them, it was the only sensible thing to do. Absolutely. And meanwhile, there were loads of funerals for Madame Geneva going on. They had not, in fact, drunk all the gin in England that night, however, and of course it continued to be sold by people without anything close to the £50 that the new Act required them to spend on a licence. Some big, busy pubs, which there were people stationed outside to literally watch them so they couldn't get away with it, they bought one. For example, Amos Wenman's Punch House on London Bridge. Only 20 licences were ever sold, so this was such a complete failure, and everyone without the licences just took the chance. They had some really fantastic techniques for trying to get away with this. So they renamed their gin, some extremely sneaky noms de gin, like Parliament Gin. (laughs) That was not so good. The Lady's Delight, King Theodore of Corsica. Bit of a tongue twister. Yeah. I found out that they called Gin Bob, which has resolved a little Dickens mystery for me, because in Our Mutual Friend, they sit in this sort of waterside tavern at some point and have some hot bob or something like that. And I was like, I literally have no idea what they are drinking. Presumably Bob after Robert Walpole. You are smart. I didn't work that out. People just got away with selling it in the same way they used to, like little street carts. Mainly all the women gin sellers had it kind of like tucked under their skirt or whatever and just gave us a wee little dram. Yeah, the main tactic was just running away if someone tried to arrest you. But there's there's other things. They had gin vending machines. Oh. Yeah, it's brilliant. They were called Puss and Mew machines. And this was a, a box, a person-sized box with a person in it, usually a woman, one of these street hawkers. And you went up and said Puss to the machine. And the person inside said Mew. 
and put a little drawer out and he put some coins in it uh, and the coins went away and out came the drawer again with a little bottle of gin in it right that seems like really overly engineered doesn't it but this is what they did they were so desperate to keep selling it and like for for a lot of people getting arrested was quite a lot of drama because they couldn't afford this fine so like hundreds of well mainly women went to prison yeah i mean they didn't even bother to try and collect this 10 pound fine the jails just suddenly got overrun by just loads of people who were just trying to sell a quick little drama of gin this all came about because the government finally got their act together and started paying informers, but th- none of this ended nicely because no one trusted each other anymore. Informers got beaten up daily throughout the period that the Gin Act was in force because people were furious about it. Like This was their own pals down the gin house looking to make a quick fiver, a lot of money in those days, by telling the government about them. And what's kind of a shame about it is that for all that gin had bad consequences for people's health and stuff it was part of their culture they were bonding by sitting around drinking and it took the edge off their crappy lives and then the government got right down in there quite sinister when you think about it paid informants sitting next to you in the pub and it was all for nothing because i think we can conclude that the gin act was an unmitigated failure in that it didn't make a lot of money for the government people carried on with the cats and in the gin and the only thing that got worse was there were loads of people in jail as a result of it so good job, Joseph Jackal. Jackal died about four years after the act went into force, so he didn't actually see its drastic failure. And actually, Queen Caroline died like one one year after the act. Wait so. a scarper. <laughs> so whilst the act was a failure, the gin craze and the gin panic did begin to abate throughout the rest of the century. And it had nothing to do with the legislation. It had more to do with things like bad harvests and the plight of the poor becoming even worse. So people didn't have as much money to spend on gin. There's no real way to wrap up the gin craze because gin is still a craze today. People still drink. The legislation of alcohol has always been a big thing. I think the real winner out of all of this is gin. Because when you walked into here today, I had two bottles of gin sitting ready on my drink shelf. I think Madame Geneva has definitely lived to see another day. She's had the last laugh. But talking about the gin craze wouldn't be complete without having a little look at a very famous image of Gin Craze, Gin Lane by Hogarth. Well, if you're saying this is famous, then it must be. This has been part of my life since childhood, this engraving. I absolutely love it. It's the most debauched-looking, raggedy alley you can imagine in London. And if you haven't heard of it or haven't seen it, pause, just Google Gin Lane, because it is such a where's wally of various things going on in this London street of horribleness, all because of gin. Right at the middle of the engraving is a really crone-like looking lady. Who is Madame Geneva. Right, she's representing gin. Okay, so she's just like lolling around on some steps. She's got a baby that's about to fall to its death. She's got syphilitic wounds all over her leg. (laughs) And she's topless. She's topless, which again brings back the whole notion of sex and how awful it is. The funny thing about that though, is that this engraving has a pair in Beer Street, which is meant to be the sunny side of the street where everyone's drinking beer and it's nice. Oh yes, this is 100% propaganda. Hogarth is showing Gin Lane saying how awful Gin is. And then he also has the engraving of Beer Street, which is like, everything's great. But a funny old one is that Madame Geneva is topless, but allegedly this isn't a sexualised image because in Beer Street, people are like having a little snuggle. They're kind of getting it on. Apparently, they uh, thought gin made you not amorous. Oh, right. Because they were worried that people weren't going to get it on and have babies to sell the warships. Well, the more you look at 
Jelaine, the more horrible things you see. Like in the background, there's just someone running out of a house with a spike with a baby on it. Just a baby skewered and a spike. It's a bit extreme. Um, I don't want to say that these are things that really happened, but for sure children did get, get neglected very badly by people who drank gin. People didn't look their best. People are selling their various professions in order to buy some gin. People from wheelbarrows selling gin. And the- to that end, the only shop on the street is the pawnbroker because everyone's selling all of their possessions to buy the gin. And at the front, you've got a soldier who's on the verge of death by the looks of it, obviously showing the scourge of gin on the armed forces. I mean, it's such a vivid image. You just keep looking at it. You've got to go and look at it. It's an absolute classic. And I think it gets across the kind of riotous nature of 18th century London as well. Like, you can see how everyone knew everyone. You were tucked, like you said, sort of three families into a a tall, leaky house. (laughs) And with that, maybe, Satu, should we maybe start to create our own scape of gin craze by maybe enjoying some of this horrible gin and going out to the streets to recreate this image? So with that, here's to gin. Thank you for listening to Fear City, telling the tales of our very favourite city in the world, London, and our home. Our music is composed by composer Joshan Mahmood. If you would like to inquire to him, he is, has a website, joshanmahmood.com. You can email us at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at fiercecitypod. Fear City was written and produced by the two voices you have heard. Thanks for listening. 